Well, at Crossway Fellowship, we hold that the scriptures are God's inspired revelation, that they are from beginning to end God's revelation to us, that they are all holy, that they are all relevant to us, even this many years removed from their writing. But there are some texts in scripture that are are more central than others. Uh, I had a professor who used to call them jugular texts. Speaking of your, your, your jugular veins that, that de- life really depends on, there are certain places where you might sustain an injury or a cut and you won't bleed to death. And there are other places where if you sustain a, a cut, you can bleed to death. And uh, those are vital vital arteries and veins, and he would say that there are some texts in Scripture that are like that. They are vital. Um, They are at the heart, if you will, of of the Christian life of eternity. Um, A a passage that I preached a couple of weeks ago, Luke chapter 9, I think is one of those on what it means to take up your cross daily and follow Christ. But if you will take your Bibles and find your way to the book of Romans, I will just say to you that the entire book of Romans is a jugular text. The entire book of Romans lies at the heart of the gospel. And so as you find your way to Romans chapter 1, let me set the stage for this majestic letter. Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Jesus' church in the imperial city of Rome. Paul is probably writing from the city of Corinth. We know from the book of Acts that Paul had established a ministry there and had remained there for about a year and a half. That was uncommon. The only other place that Paul stayed that long was the city of Ephesus where he ministered for three years. Other than that, Corinth was his longest stay. And that was for about a year and a half. And it's from the city of Corinth that he writes this letter to Rome. It is carried by a woman named Phoebe. And we find that out from the last chapters of the letter where he recommends her to the church in Rome. and says, this is Phoebe. Make sure that you know she's a dear sister in Christ. Welcome her. And so Paul writes this letter partly because he's never met the believers in Rome. Paul had not planted this church, and so he did not, he's never personally met these Christians, and yet he is very familiar with the people there. When he ends his letter in Romans chapter 16, he affectionately greets some 28 different individuals or families by name. So he knows the people there. He is familiar with them. Says a lot about how Christian communities, churches, and all the various cities in the Roman Empire communicated with one another. And as they traveled, brought news from one church to another church. As we read this letter, we discover that Paul has a missional purpose for writing. He desires to meet the believers in Rome on his way to preach the gospel in Spain. And he hopes that the church in Rome will help support his mission, will highlight those 
those different passages as we come to them here in the letter, but this is Paul's ambition. He wants to go to Spain and preach the gospel, and he sees Rome as the staging place for that. Everywhere that Paul has been so far has been east of the city of Rome, and he wants to get to Rome and greet the believers there. He loves them already, and that comes through in the letter, but he also wants to say, look, I'm an apostle, I'm on a mission for the gospel, and I want to go to Spain, and I want to preach the gospel there, and it's my hope that you will, you will share in this vision for this mission to Spain and help support me. He also has a pastoral purpose for writing. Outside of just the normal encouragements to live a holy life, Paul writes to address what appears to be some confusion over the relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. This relationship between the law that had been given to the people of Israel and Christians who were never under the law before they came to Christ and became Christians. Paul's tone doesn't seem urgent, but it certainly points to some tension and maybe even some level of conflict over uh, these things, these issues. He addresses it most directly in chapter 14, where he talks about a strong faith and a weak faith. He talks about loving one another and how we're, how we're to not make demands or judge one another in areas of conscience. And so he has this missional reason for writing. He has this pastoral reason for writing. And both his apostolic calling and his mission and his pastoral concerns result in a theological purpose for writing as he explains the gospel, and at times defends it. Paul will at many times in the letter, and if you've ever read the, the, the epistle to the Romans, you, you will recognize this, he will pose these questions. And he is taking up this conversation with an imaginary debater, someone who will ask this, shall we do this? Shall we say this then? And then he'll answer it. That is Paul's way of, of communicating a defense of the gospel. And it's, it's correcting certain misunderstandings of the gospel. And so in response to his missional plans and his pastoral concerns, Paul doesn't just say, hey guys, you know what? You need to love each other. Now he does talk about love, especially in chapters 12 and 13, he talks about love, but he doesn't just say, hey guys, you need to get along. You guys just, you need to love each other. No, Paul goes down to the very foundations of truth to explore and unpack the deep realities of the gospel so that it all makes sense for us. And so what the Holy Spirit produces in the book of Romans through the Apostle Paul is the most thorough and organized explanation in all of the Bible of how God's plan of salvation, redemption, 
unfolds in the gospel. How that plan is fulfilled in the gospel. Romans explains God's sovereign working from behind the curtain. Now, if you call Crossway home and you're here regularly, you have probably heard me refer to this different perspective that the writers of the Bible write from. That sometimes they will take a what I call a street-level perspective when they write. And they will write about God's truth and reveal God's mind from the perspective of how we experience it. At other times, they will write from what you might call a bird's eye view or what I call from behind the curtain, things we would not otherwise ever know from behind the veil of the workings of God's sovereign plans and his designs, God's viewpoint on things. And oftentimes, the writers of Scripture will, within the same book or the same letter, the same gospel, they'll write from both. They will at some times make a comment and say something or give a command that is a street-level instruction, and at other times then they'll explain and they'll say something about God's perspective or his sovereign plans that's going on behind the curtain. The entire book of Romans, almost the entire book of Romans, is written from behind the curtain. There is nowhere else in the Bible we get a clearer explanation of God's sovereign thought and plan and program than in the book of Romans. The book of Romans reveals how and why God has worked and why and how he is working. It reveals the mind of God, his sovereign will, his eternal plans. It gives us God's purposes for creation, for humanity, the entire human race, for redemption, for all of history, for eternity. So Romans chapters 1 through 11 are mostly explanation. Not entirely, but mostly. This unfolding, this unpacking, this explanation of what the gospel is and why it is. Chapters 12 through 16 are mostly exhortation. And it all hinges on Paul's uh, uh, opening words in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, I beseech you, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. And then he launches in, live this way, see life from this perspective, take this path. Paul summarizes, though, the central point of the entire letter in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. And look at this here. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, in just those two verses are are summarized the primary themes of the entire letter. And we take this then as our central theme for this study, the power 
of the gospel. Romans is about the power of the gospel. It is the gospel that explains creation's purpose, that explains creation's corruption, its decay, and its future restoration. It is the gospel that reveals the plight of the human race and its rebellion against God. It is the gospel that provides hope for the rebellious lost humanity. It is the gospel that reveals how Jesus' death and resurrection provide redemption for every person and how faith is necessary to be saved. It is the gospel that demonstrates this great theme, the righteousness of God. That God is just in saving the person who believes on Jesus Christ and is just in destroying the person who rejects him. You might even say that the entire letter of Romans is a letter that justifies God in all of his sovereign purposes. It is the gospel that establishes our true position in Christ. Boy, just wait until we get to chapter six, seven, and eight. Our position in Christ, we are united with him in his death and his new life, his resurrection life, because of our faith in him. It is the gospel that explains this new life in the spirit and our security in God's love and how we fit into this plan, into this great program of salvation that dominates history. It is the gospel that explains the place of both Jews and Gentiles in this plan and how all of us are under sin and how every one of us is in desperate need of this salvation that God has provided. The gospel is the power of God to save. So Romans is majestic in its scope, in its breadth, and in its depth, it is, in the truest sense of the word, epic. Now I want you to, uh, to look at Romans chapter one, verses one through seven. I invite you to look there. This is where we're gonna spend the rest of our time today. Actually, through verse 6, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Let me read these and we'll pray. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, We come to you now confessing that we need your grace to grasp your word. Move us toward holiness. 
Strengthen us in our works of faith and our labors of love and our endurance and hope. And do so through this text of Romans, we ask you, amen. So you'll notice that Paul introduces himself here by naming, first of all, his master, and then his office, and then his purpose. He is a servant of Christ Jesus, meaning that he is an authorized representative of Jesus. Now, this, this term servant does mean that his life is submitted. He is, he is, um, he is enslaved, if you will, to Jesus Christ, but it's a, it's, a, it's a designation. He's saying, I represent him because I am submitted to him and I am called to a certain purpose. I am a servant of Christ Jesus and with him lies my loyalty and my devotion. That's what Paul is saying with that little phrase. He is a servant of Christ Jesus. And he also then claims this office he is called to be an apostle. And of course, Paul is referring to his conversion. He's referring to the events of Acts chapter 9, where he, as Saul, the persecutor of Jesus and his church, is traveling down the road of Damas to Damascus, and Jesus himself appears to Paul, Saul, in a blinding light, and at that point converts him as well as calls him to be an apostle. That was all one event for Paul. And he points back to that and he says, I was called to be an apostle, one of those who was personally commissioned by Jesus to lay the foundation for the gospel and the church, to lay that foundation of truth and Paul often had to explain his apostleship because Jesus' disciples, those who walked with him, who had watched him die on the cross and, and rise from the dead and then had seen his resurrected self and spoken with him and been commissioned by him and commanded to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. And those, those, they had these credentials and everybody knew who they were. Paul's experience was one that was kind of off the, off the charts. It was kind of in its own category. And Paul often had to explain that. And Paul had also seen and heard from and been commissioned by the resurrected Lord in this special event on the road to Damascus. And so he is one of these personally commissioned by Jesus. He is a servant of Christ Jesus. He has been called to be an apostle. But it is his master and it is his apostleship that give Paul his purpose, his real meaning. He is set apart for the gospel of God. Now, I know that many of us wish that we had that kind of clarity for the meaning of our lives and what God would have us to do? We ask that question often. But the scriptures really answer the core of that question. What is my meaning in life? What is my purpose for being here? Now, for Paul, that was very specific, being worked out in a very specific mission. He is set apart for the gospel of God. And so it is the proclamation of this gospel that dominates Paul's life. 
And when he explains the gospel in this letter that follows, he does so with God's authority. It is God's gospel, and Paul is God's messenger. And you see, the key to the Christian life and faith is not innovation. It is faithfulness. It is faithfulness to this gospel that has been handed down to us. And Paul says he's been set apart for this gospel of God. And before he even greets his audience, before he even greets the Romans, the Roman Christians, down in verse 7, Paul wants to captivate us with this gospel of God. He wants to just give us a taste of what he's about, all of the glories and all of the treasures of the gospel that he's about to just spill out on us. And so he he starts here by proclaiming what I want to call four wonders of the gospel. Four wonders of the gospel. First of all, God's gospel fulfills God's promises, verse 2. God's gospel fulfills God's promise. This gospel, God himself promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, the Holy Scriptures are what we have as the Old Testament, beginning with Genesis, ending with Malachi. These are the Holy Scriptures. These are the very Scriptures that Jesus read memorized, relied on, taught out of, proclaimed, and they are the very scriptures from which the apostles proclaimed the gospel. They explained the gospel out of what we look at as the Old Testament. Remember, they didn't have what we have as the New Testament. Our New Testament is the product or the recording of their teaching. This is the reason Jesus spent so much time opening their minds to understand the scriptures. This is what Luke records in Luke chapter 24, verses 45 through 46. He says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That is, he explained to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Jesus would explain how Moses and all the prophets contained all of the things concerning himself. You can almost see in Paul's language here, he uses some of the same terms, concerning his son. All of the, the, uh, all of the nations, it's to be proclaimed to. Jesus was looking at our Old Testament. This is why he had to uh, explain it, though. But now here's the relationship Paul shows. The gospel originated from God. It was revealed through the prophets, and then it was recorded and preserved in the Holy Scriptures. Now, this doesn't mean that the gospel was fully explained in the Old Testament. In reality, though it was revealed, it's contained there, it was hidden. 
It was hidden there in seed form. That's why nobody understood it. Even the prophets themselves did not understand that what they were writing meant what it would end up meaning, what would unfold out of it. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter chapter 1. They longed to look into the words they were writing. They knew they were writing something that they themselves did not comprehend because it was really the Holy Spirit revealing it. The prophets didn't understand it. The Old Testament saints did not understand it. And when Jesus arrives and begins to proclaim the kingdom is at hand, the crowds did not understand it, what he meant. Even the religious leaders who knew the scriptures, frontwards and backwards, in every way debated, they lived and breathed our Old Testament. They did not understand it. And even the disciples themselves did not understand it. Even when Jesus is saying point blank to them, the son of man must die and be raised after three days. They didn't have these categories. They did not understand what he was saying because they had already formed certain expectations based on the scriptures they were reading. And those expectations were half right. They were partly right. There would come a savior. There would come a king. But they didn't understand all of the dimensions and the richness of who that person would be, who that Messiah would be. They didn't understand any of that. Why? Even though it was revealed in the Holy Scriptures, it was not made clear. And that is why Jesus, when he, after he rises from the dead, has to go to the Scriptures and say, Look, it's all right here. It's all right here. And then the light dawns. Then they get it. And so once they now have gotten it, they go back to the scriptures to understand it and then to proclaim it and explain it. Now, why is this important? Well, for one thing, it demonstrates that God has the sovereign power and is faithful to do whatever he says he will do. That when God makes promises, he keeps them. That he is both faithful to keep them and has the power and the authority to keep his promises. But what Paul is really getting at here is that the gospel cannot be detached or separated from its place in God's program. It's not this interruption. It's not God's kind of... Um, plan B that he just kind of threw in there given the circumstances. That this is God's plan from the beginning. The gospel is not a standalone episode in history. It is part of this unfolding plan. In fact, the gospel is the climax of the plan. This is the summit of all that God has done. And the scriptures then validate the gospel is true. Not fabricated. That it is from God. It is not from man. That this is the plan. This has always been the plan. 
And as Paul begins to address these issues between Jews and Christians who, are all, who all belong to God as Jesus' people, they've all believed, they've all been cleansed from sin. As he begins to unpack all of this, the gospel is what explains why and how that can be. So this is the first wonder of the gospel. It fulfills God's promise. God's plan, his program, is right on schedule. It's right on track. Secondly, God's gospel exalts God's son. God's gospel exalts God's son. Paul says he is set apart for the gospel of God concerning his son. At the center of the gospel is God's son. All that God has done has reached its meaning and its conclusion in the Son. And now Paul says a couple of remarkable things about the Son. Verse 3. He was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, don't let yourself just read over that like a, an entry in the phone book. Okay. He was descended from David according to the flesh. Paul is, first of all, highlighting a specific promise through the prophets. He's just said that, that the prophets promised all of this. This gospel has come down as a fulfillment of all of these promises that were spoken through the prophets and recorded by the prophets. And specifically and most importantly is this covenant promise that God makes to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he would establish David's throne forever and that his descendants would sit on that throne forever, that it would never be empty, that David would have a son who would rule over God's people. And you see, even when Israel then underwent God's judgment... Even when Israel was sent into exile, removed from the land of promise, the prophets throughout the centuries continued to point to this promise that God made David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 as Israel's one true hope. Many of our favorite verses at Christmas time come from these prophecies. A root from the stump of David. What's that? Isaiah is saying that hundreds of years after David, but he's pointing back to this promise that a Messiah, a king, a savior would come from David's line and that Israel was to place their hope for salvation in that. That even though God was judging his people because he's being faithful to the covenant, the covenant they had been unfaithful to, they could know and hope that God would someday save, that he would make good on that. Why? Because he'd made a promise to David. And so that is their hope. God's son was descended from David according to the flesh. 
And so Jesus had the right credentials. He had the necessary human lineage that fulfilled the divine plan. And it demonstrates the son's humanity. That's what Paul's getting at here by in the flesh. Sometimes Paul will use the word flesh to talk about our sin, our sinful natures. But here he's talking about the fact that that the Messiah, the promised one, the fulfillment of this plan had to be David's descendant in the flesh. Only David's descendant in the flesh, a human, could fulfill that promise, that covenant promise. And only a human in the flesh could represent the human race back to God. Jesus had descended from David according to the flesh. Also, this son was declared to be the son of God in power. This word declared really means appointed or determined or maybe designated. I like the way the Christian Standard Bible, very good translation by the way, translates this this phrase. He was appointed to be the powerful son of God. This is what is meant by the the Son of God in power. The Son was appointed to reign in power. The Son's power then and his kingship is revealed in the gospel. It is only, in fact, by his power and his kingship that the gospel can save If Jesus is not Lord, if he is not king, he cannot save. And Paul's going to explain just how bad off the human race is, just how lost humanity is, how separated and hopeless humanity is from God. And if if Jesus is not Lord and king, he cannot save out of that. But he is the son He is the center of the gospel. He is appointed to reign in power. And this appointment then is according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now, the the book of Romans, I gotta explain. Look, just the book of Romans is extremely dense, okay? To unpack all of these things, there's a week's worth of sermons right here. In fact, as you will feel this too, as we study the book of Romans, it will be like driving through downtown Seattle. You get, you stop and look around. You chicken. You stop and look around. That's what studying the book of Romans is going to be like, okay? But the son here is, a, uh, he is appointed in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The son's resurrection from the dead, then, was his authorization to rule in power. Now, Paul will say a lot more about his resurrection, especially in chapter 6 when he talks about because we have believed in him, we have been raised with him. We are united to Christ in his resurrection from the dead. But here, Paul is talking about this event as the as the means by which the Son of God has been appointed in power. 
to rule in power. The, resur- uh, the resurrection happened according to the spirit of holiness. This was the Spirit's way, uh, God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, His way of, of um, working in God's redemptive plan. So here we have God, the Father. We have His Son, the center of the gospel. And now we have the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. All of them at work to bring about God's plan to save. The entire Trinity is at work in the bringing forth of the gospel. Which leads Paul then to declare Jesus Christ our Lord. This son is none other than Jesus himself. Jesus Christ our Lord. Here is God's son. He is Jesus, he is Christ, Messiah, and he is Lord. He is the focus, he is the very center of God's plan and his work of salvation. Such is the wonder of the gospel. And it follows then that God's gospel accomplishes God's mission. So, God's gospel then accomplishes God's mission. God's gospel fulfills God's promise. God's gospel exalts God's son. And God's gospel accomplishes God's mission. Verse five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul explains that it is through God's Son, Jesus Christ, that he has received his commission. This word grace is talking about it's a gift. And Paul didn't sign up for this commission, that Paul didn't, um, Paul didn't apply for it. He didn't earn it. He had not you know, graduated from some program to get to be an apostle It was a gift. It was God's sovereign moving in Paul's life that brought him to this commission. It is grace and it is apostleship. In proclaiming the gospel then, Paul's task is to bring about the obedience of faith. What does he mean by that? We tend to fall into the trap of separating obedience from faith. And the reason why is because we are very, very guarded about saying that, uh, that we can be saved by any other way than God's grace. And we know that Paul in other places, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, will write that is for by grace we have been saved through faith. This is not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast but it is the gift of God. It can't get any clearer than that. And what we hear when we hear the term obedience is we hear works. We hear something other than grace. We hear something other than faith. But there are many places in the New Testament where faith and obedience are joined together. This is one of them. Paul will say this exact same phrase in chapter 15, right before he ends the letter. 
And so what he means by the obedience of faith is both, number one, that the gospel's call is to be obeyed by believing in God's son, trusting in him. That is obedience of faith. Because the gospel, understand, is not just an offer. It's not just an invitation. God is not trying to sell the human race something. The gospel is not a commercial that is saying, hey, if you want to have a better life, if you want eternal life, if you don't want God's judgment, we'd just like to invite you to come and consider Christianity. That is not the gospel. The gospel commands the gospel and the entire story and program of God's salvation is a demand on the human race. The gospel confronts all of humanity, the entire race, with its lostness and its rebellion, and it calls upon the entire human race to turn to God for mercy. It is not, it is not optional. To not obey the gospel is to continue in rebellion, the rebellion that every human being is born into already. But the gospel is not just an invitation. God is not selling something. The gospel is calling for faith. You believe me, I have provided to undo your rebellion, to forgive it, to redeem you out of slavery. So the obedience of faith means both that, that the gospel call us to be obeyed by believing in God's Son, and secondly, that believing in Jesus Christ the Lord, true faith, is a life lived in submission to his kingship. It is to live life under the lordship of the son in power that Jesus now is. So the obedience of faith is both of those, all of that. And this is Paul's task then. So when Paul preaches the gospel, he is, it's by, by definition, it is confrontational. That doesn't mean it's, it's mean-spirited or harsh, but it's confrontational. It must deal with sin. It has to deal with the human condition. And that means there is obedience of faith. And it is his God-given task to bring that about and only the gospel, only the power of the gospel can accomplish it. The gospel accomplishes God's mission. And this is God's mission in the world then because it is among all the nations for the sake of his name. And you see, part of Paul's burden in writing this letter is to explain just how and why all of the nations are called to the obedience of faith. Because it would be very easy for us to go, well, that's very obvious for Israel. It's very obvious for the Jews. They are called to an obedience of faith. 
it's very easy, and some will say, oh, that's your religion, or that's the Jewish religion. We have our own. But Paul is saying that, uh, and he will unfold here, what he's going to explain is how the entire human race is accountable to the gospel. Why no nation or race or people group or tribe can say, oh, that's your faith, we have our gods. God's name is to be honored in all of the nations, all peoples and all their religions and all their gods are to be given up and sacrificed in exchange for the one true God. The gospel reveals that. That is part of the gospel message. God's name is to be honored in all the nations. So God's gospel accomplishes God's mission. Fourth wonder we see here is that God's gospel includes you. God's gospel includes you. Verse six. If God's, uh, if Paul's task is to, is to, uh, bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, that has included you. You come from all the nations. And all the nations here are not just Gentiles. He's ta- speaking of the Jewish people as well. They are all the nations. They just now are joined by everybody else. It includes you. Because you have believed God's gospel, you belong. You belong to Jesus Christ. You were owned. You are among the nations, but you are his, and you are in his kingdom. And when Paul says this, he doesn't just mean you as in the church, We as God's people, he means you as an individual. We have in our Christian, greater Christian culture, reacted to a certain level of individualism. And partly that comes from our Western culture. We are Americans and we we tend to be independent, spirited, and that's part of our history, our heritage. And that leaks into our understanding often of Scripture and the gospel. And there is need to remember that we are a people, we are a community, that faith and righteousness, holiness, spiritual growth, that all happens in the context of God's people in the church. But in the book of Romans, Paul is not just concerned about the community. Later on in Romans, he gets more concerned about the church community. But when he unpacks these treasures of the gospel in chapters 1 through 11, especially chapters 1 through 10, he is often specifically speaking to each of us as an individual who is accountable to God for our response to the gospel. 
whether or not we will exercise an obedience of faith. And when he says you belong to Jesus Christ, it is not just we as a church do. It means you do. You belong to him. And you know what? That makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in how you understand life, where you find your meaning and your purpose, where you find fulfillment, where you find hope when life is horrible, where you gain understanding of your place in history and in God's plan and program. Where do you fit in? You belong to Jesus Christ. And it makes all the difference in the world. Romans is going to explain your place in the story, your position in the person of Christ, and how you are to live in light of that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the wonders of the gospel. And as we come to this letter If we are going to be a community of faith called by the gospel of Jesus Christ to serve and to live you the one true living God, then we must grasp the book of Romans. And Lord, we trust that you will help us to. And that even now as we begin, and even this week as we go about being your people, that we will live in light of the wonders of the gospel, that the fulfillment of the ages has come upon us, that the zenith of your plan in the, has already unfolded in the gospel because you have come, Lord Jesus, and died and risen from the dead. And we praise you, we exalt you as the one true God who has given us life. And Lord Jesus, we rejoice this morning that we belong to you.